What's going on? Much love, everybody. This is the Postdoc PT Experience, episode number 19. I'm your host, Dr. Nick Gula, and today we were fortunate enough to be joined by Dr. A.J. Johnson, the one, the only. A.J. is a current sports resident at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and he went to PT school at Carroll University in Wisconsin. So in today's episode, me and A.J., really take a deep dive into patient education. And we, we talk about not only what, but maybe how to deliver and give a couple tips and tricks and things that maybe you guys can use as well. We also, if you, you hang on for a little bit, talk about that age old question of what do I choose a sports or an ortho residency? What's the difference? What do I get out of it? And if you really hang on towards the end, it's a little bit of a longer episode, but if you make it towards that end piece, we then talk about the big picture. Where do we see residency going in the future? Where, what do we want to see with residency going in the future? And in general, where do we see the PT profession going? So I know I learned a lot from this conversation. I'm going to take away some not only clinical pearls, but some, some thought processes to digest a little bit down the road. AJ said he took something out of it too. So I'm glad to hear that. But we hope you guys, first and foremost, take something out of this and can at least share in some of the sentiments. If not, that's okay. Keep challenging, keep pushing us even. Hopefully this at least marks some questions in your head and says, hey, I disagree with these guys, but why? So to mark the occasion, this is December 3rd, 2020. AJ is about four months into his sports residency over there at the Mayo Clinic. And I am rounding out my year and a half residency here at Ohio State. I have two weeks left. Last night was a big night. We had our final residency research presentations. So I just want to throw a shout out to my Ohio State residency peeps. You guys did a great job. We're finally done. You earned that break. Take it. So with that, though, I want to throw it back to AJ and I want to welcome him to the show. I hope you guys enjoy this as much as I did. So without further ado, Dr. AJ Johnson. AJ, good morning, man. How are you? Good, Nick. Good morning. It's uh, finally great to uh, meet you virtually in person uh, after sharing some nice conversations back and forth. I know. We had some first nice email conversations, and then we had some good texts, but it's uh, it's good to finally see you. Yeah, it seems to be the theme of 2020, right? Is uh, meeting virtually and then getting to see each other virtually. So, no, I'm uh, glad to be on here and uh, glad to be meeting with you this morning. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule. The funny thing that I want to want to point out is you're you're out west. This is a different time zone, right? So it's 7:45-ish around your time and it's 8:45-ish for me. But we're from the same area. We we grew up probably what within the same hour of each other. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh what did we grow up with when you first gave me a call and I saw a Pennsylvania area code. I was like, oh my goodness, like this, this kind of throws me back to my childhood of growing up around Philadelphia. So very close, close relationship to where we grew up. But yeah, now the, uh, the time zone difference from central to Eastern time, it's, uh, it's definitely something to get used to. Right. When, when, when you first said, are you talking Eastern time or central time? Like, whoa, I did not really thought about that before. So, I mean, that ushers into the point that 
you were one of my first outside of the Ohio State system or outside of like my niche physical therapy world in uh, Philadelphia as well system. So this is a big first step for the postdoc PT experience. So well, we're going to cross time zones, man. Well, I'm, I just, I'm honored by this. I mean, <laughs> I, I truly am to break down barriers, right? Is, uh, is one of the things that I, I really enjoy. So, Hey, that's what we try to do. We try to reflect, we try to break down barriers. We try to disseminate information. That's all you got to do with life. <laughs> so let's, let's get started. Let's get right into it. So my usual thing and, and Matt, my co-host always laughs at this, but you know, I'm still going to keep going with this because I've been learning a lot over the past couple episodes, but teach me something. What do you got? Yeah, so this was honestly probably the hardest part of the preparation for this uh, podcast. But um, so I was doing a little bit of digging into kind of like the different wonders of the world. And one of the things that kind of fascinates me is like the Great Pyramids of Giza and just how they were kind of built. Um, But one of the things I didn't realize is all four corners point in the true directional cardinal planes. So each corner is aligned with north, south, east, west. And then when you go back to what was it about 2000 bc when they're beginning to be built there was no compasses and even in fact the north star which a lot of compasses and how um, travelers used to orient themselves to to the globe the north star wasn't in the same exact position that it is in today nice. so yeah so what they actually wound up doing is they took properties of like how a sundial operates with um, navigating the different times. Mm-hmm. They counted 91 days forward from the summer solstice, which is the longest day in the year, to get to the fall equinox. They put a stick in the ground, a very tall stick called a gnomon, G-N-O-M-O-N. Wow, um, you even got gets, the pronunciation. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Jeez. I think so. I think I, think I nailed it. Um, and then as that, as the sun comes up that day, it's going to cast a shadow that's directly east and west. So as it sets throughout the day of the sun, and they were able to kind of use those markings in the sand to orient one aspect of the, of the pyramid. So you're saying it wasn't aliens? There's actual science behind it. I mean, I'm I'm skeptical. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, and and this is this is one hypothesized theory into it. Um, right. Obviously, the biggest theory I have is aliens for sure, hundred um, percent. Having been to Roswell, New Mexico, I think it's oh, Area okay. Fifty One. It's I think something's cooking. Okay. Oh yeah, that's that's pretty cool. I uh, I really thoroughly enjoyed that. I, I don't think I've heard that that side of the pyramids before. I've, I've, I'm, mm-hmm. I like history. I like I like all this stuff. So like you're right up my alley when you're talking about that. But that's a that's a pretty cool fact. I didn't know that they were uh, aligned in the cardinal planes. That's just another thing that just like whoa, what's going on? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think when with how accurate it was too, it just blew my mind. It was, I think they said 0.06 degrees off. Stop. Which just is mind blowing for the technology back then. That's aliens. Come on. Yeah. It's gotta be one, one quick aside. I, I was listening to the Joe Rogan podcast the other day and they are talking because Joe kind of likes this kind of conversation. So if you ever wind up listening, Joe, this is for you. (laughs) He won't. But he was saying that he had this one guest on 
that's saying that, like you said, the, the pyramids, what, like 2000 BC, something around there, maybe 5000 BC when they were when they were built. But there's more evidence to show because of water erosion patterns that they actually misdated some of the earliest monuments in Egypt and that they're thinking that some of them are old enough to be like 10,000 or 12,000 BC based on just the water patterns and erosion and just when the last time there was big floods in that uh, like Europe or that uh, Egyptian plain. So just something to think about. No, that is absolutely mind-blowing then to think that you just rewind the clock even more 8,000 years with technological advances, human evolution, that they were still then able to build these massive monuments that are I know. And hugely I mean, scaled even in our time set. And even I mean, how long would it take us these days or how close could we get with that, you know? Perfect. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, no worries. So, I mean, I think that takes us right into what I think the meat of our real conversation should be. So if we're thinking about all these technological advances and humans and society making all of these big leaps, I mean, I feel like personally residency and for me as well, fellowship is one of those big leaps within our physical therapy profession. So yeah. I'm going to open it up right away to you. I'm going to put you on the spot. Why residency? Yeah, so I mean, now having current applicants apply as this is the cycle just ended for applications this year, a lot of residents or future residents asked me that question too. And I think it allows for a nice reflection point. Residency to me was the way to advance my career the fastest in the field that I knew I wanted to get into. So with myself wanting to get more involved with sports medicine and the management of sports related injuries at both acutely and then chronically, residency was for me the best pathway with all of the different components to accelerate my career as a new graduate to get to a more experienced and more polished clinician as fast and as most efficient way as possible. Huh. I, uh, I think from, from talking to current and past residents, I think a lot of people share those same undertones in why they're doing a residency, but it sounds like you're really, you're really sure about what you want to do. And because you're really sure about what you want to do, you're looking for that next step. Yeah, I think that's exactly right with the way physical therapy is trending in this direction of PT school makes you a great generalist and they want you to be able to go into any clinic anywhere and treat competently. Mm -hmm. um, but with myself and my personal experiences, sports medicine really resonated with me and having the opportunity to become more involved in all aspects of sports medicine through a residency program was awesome that that opportunity exists out there in this field. Right. Because I mean, th there's what the the classic counter argument of, oh, well, if you want to progress in your given field, you can just study for this uh, board test, whatever it's the OCS, the SCS, the NCS, and you can learn that on your own. You can seek out your own mentors, which you definitely can. 
And I'm, I'm the first person to not beat down those people that choose not to do a residency. That's, that's your choice. That's your opinion. Great. We can also have great conversations and you're probably a better clinician than I am still. <laughs> but at the same time, I feel like you highlight the point that it's the well-rounded nature of what you're exposed to, not only on the clinical side and the mentoring, which I feel like residency mentoring is different than outside of the out, like a just regular clinic mentoring, right? It's more standardized and structured from the point that you get it a lot and you get it often. But the next point is you get the, the surgical stuff, you get the on-field stuff, you get the learning from the best people in the situation that just fits your plan. So like, sure, you could have a mentor at this clinic that you work at, and they're great at what, let's say spine, or they're great at soccer. But then what happens when you have a baseball player comes in? What happens when you have uh, somebody with an ankle injury? They can help you with that. That's not their expertise, though. So I don't know how it is at the Mayo Clinic. But here at Ohio State, we have so many great clinicians. And I'm sure it's the same thing for you guys. It's such a reputable clinic as that. But we you have a problem, you go to this person, or you have a problem with this, you go to this person, you, you have your selected mentors that are really subspecialized as well, which is just another huge benefit, in my opinion. I 100% agree with, with everything you just said. And one of the things that I've really enjoyed about residency and why I chose to pursue it too, as well, was that interprofessional nature of all these different areas of sports medicine, orthopedics coming together in one place. And you have this vast wealth of knowledge that you probably don't even know exists until you're exposed to it, which I think is fascinating. It's Every kind of like, day. yes, which is like, as a new grad, you, you come out thinking like, yeah, I know, I know my stuff a little bit. And then residency kind of kicks in and it's like, yeah, there's so much out there that I don't know exists and I don't know how to kind of approach either. Or it's at least you think you know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. And then residency, again, builds on what you were just saying and opens your, your mind's eye to just there's so many more possibilities that you haven't even thought of yet. And then you still have to figure that out and learn about it. Yeah, exactly. But, but then comes in the structured nature that you're kind of mentioning of you're having this more structured mentoring schedule you're having more structured didactic sessions more structured on-field coverage at least in terms of sports sports pt residencies where you're more oftentimes going to be allotted time to explore those different areas which you want to continue to grow but then at the same time, in a big healthcare system like Mayo Clinic, like the Ohio State University um, that you're at, you have this vast physician network, vast physical therapy network, where you're exactly right. If I had a question about a tennis player who was having like shoulder pain, I could find someone who's specialized in shoulders or specialized in rehabbing tennis athletes. So just having that vast wealth of knowledge, but then being able to kind of explore and expand on that, I think has been one of the big driving factors for me pursuing. Now, this is, this is a, still a newer experience for you, right? Residency mm -hmm. wise, you're, you're just getting into it, but you have you, have you had the experience of 
seeing how different physicians or different surgeons practice and seeing outcomes change based on their practice styles? Yeah. So I think now four months into the residency program, what I've really noticed in the field of medicine is the way we articulate our findings, our prognoses, our plan of care to patients is, in my opinion, one of the most important things that we can do. And watching how some of these surgeons articulate biomechanical pathologies, as well as tying into their functional deficits without instilling this kinesiophobia, this fear of movement has been vastly impressive in my opinion, just based off of my preconceived notions of orthopedic surgeons, sports medicine physicians, whatever the case might be, we're always trying to look for this biomechanical um, source of pain and just how they're able to get this therapeutic alliance has really helped me reflect upon how I speak with patients to instill that there is this, there is a confidence with their clinician and being able to provide them with the best care. So I, I want to make a quick distinction. I think that we're right now, me and you in a little bit of a, a bubble when it comes to this, this is maybe the, the perfect or like close to the perfect sense of what a, a physician and physical therapist relationship should be. Right. We have a lot of communication. They know their stuff. They understand what we do because we're in a, such a great system that communicates and puts that and predicates that. But that's not the case. And I would say what the other percentage of just orthopedics in general, whether you're talking sports or just general orthopedics. I mean, I, I see and I've seen plenty of orthopedic surgeons that do the exact opposite of what you just said and instill that kinesiophobia. And I think, I think it's important to make the distinction that if, if you're looking at a, a residency from the standpoint of an academic institution, you're probably going to get a little bit of a different experience versus let's say like a private practice residency and the, the lack of connection or just the, the lack of depth that, some people go into it because I mean, let's face it, orthopedic surgeons at the Mayo Clinic, like what would what couple of the, the best in the world, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And I, I think too, with the academic institution versus like say a private practice residency, for example, you're having this concept and this preconceived notion that every, it is a teaching institution it's kind of, I relate back to the Mayo Clinic's virtues and values of it's being a patient care and patient centered first and foremost, a teaching opportunity and a teaching institution for both residents, fellows, students, and then also a research institution. So they hang their hats on all of those different aspects where as a, as a physical therapist resident coming into this situation, everyone is up to date as possible on research obviously no one can ever stay fully ahead of research but they're engaged in the research they're engaged in teaching they're staying current with the best practices for patient care and then that values kind of embodied at the top of the organization trickle down throughout the organization to 
all those other healthcare providers. Right. So then we really start to embody those because now our leaders are living their lives, living their professional life, embodying those, those values. Wholeheartedly agree. And you know what? I, I connect that a little bit more to you, like you're, you have, you have the leaders, right. That are in the, the right situations that are the right leaders for the group. Right. And it makes the, the company go around. It feels like, I don't know about you and I'm sure this is probably the same, but it feels like here at Ohio state, we're more of a family than a, just a work environment. I feel like you can, you can go to your boss, you can go to your even higher ups and they're going to look at things with a little bit more of an understanding and a perspective versus some other situations that I've been in personally. It's maybe not the case or they don't focus on the, the soft part and the soft skill side of things as much. So I think, I don't know where I was going to go with that, but I was, I was going to say, uh, we were, we were talking about how just again, the, the higher institutions, the, uh, the academic institutions are somebody that's going to afford you that opportunity. Right. And it's because they can come from a place where they get higher reimbursement rates. We don't have to see as many people. Right. So we're fortunate from that aspect. And again, it's a really good learning environment because of that, but it, it's an interesting thought for the people that don't stay in the system, right? So like you're going to go through your residency. If they have spots, great. They can, they can hire on. And a lot of companies value that in keeping the people that they taught and just going down the line on that and keep passing on some of the knowledge. But at the same time, there's not a job for everybody. And we might have to go out into quote unquote, the real world that is not going to be as picturesque as this. So I think maybe taking some of the values and understanding the background and taking it with a grain of salt and helping disseminate that into the other world, if possible, would be the ideal situation. I don't know if that's actually possible. Yeah, no, I think... Uh, that d- d- definitely brings up an interesting point with relationship to kind of you and I are we're in a very nice situation with our post um, graduate or post doc experience, so to speak. Exactly. Like plug it. for plug for the podcast right there. Um, but then taking what we know and what the values that we've enjoyed about patient management, patient care, working with our other providers. And if we don't wind up at the same location, being able to take some of those values and some of those things that we truly enjoyed and we felt like made a benefit and an impact, not only on the patient, but on our other um, coworkers, our other professionals, bringing, being able to try to bring those, as you kind of mentioned, like that dissemination of bringing those to the other areas that we might work in, trying to then slowly build up whatever case might be, whether it be trying to instill more of the research base, trying to instill more of the education base, starting your own residency, something like that, where you're taking from the profession early on, where you're engaging in the residency, you're remaining active and all those other professional things, but then giving back afterwards of trying 
trying to propel this profession in the right in the quote unquote, I guess, the the right direction of trying to instill all of these amazing values of patient care. Right. I think I think you hit the nail on the head with that in, in my personal opinion. Um two two responses to that. One is for you something so I'm I'm at the end of my year and a half experience with residency. And going through my mind and my thought process has changed a lot. I mean, you guys listening wise can probably listen from July till now and hear a difference in the way I reflect and the way I, I go about my my decisions. But something that I wish I, I kept in in mind a little bit earlier was this aspect of not only just taking the information that you're you're given right now and applying it to your given situation, but going further in the next step and asking yourself, asking your mentors, asking your your faculty, like, okay, well, let's flip the script a little bit. What's going to happen if I am in a private practice and this isn't available? What's the next step? How do I? How should I go about this? Or what do you suggest? So let's say just easy, for example, take a, uh, an ACL patient, right? And one of the things that we're really trying to push away from is the time perspective of ACL rehab, right? And we're trying to get a little bit more objective. And, and with that, we've definitely made some great strides at looking at LSI or limb symmetry index. Maybe that's not enough but that's a, a topic for another discussion. But at the same time, if you want to get a true limb symmetry index, what do you need? You need a true isokinetic test, right? You're not going to have access to that at a regular clinic in a regular office. Those, those machines cost thousands of dollars. No one's going to spend their time on that. So going from the sense of like, great, this is the perfect world. We're going to send our patients to get isokinetic testing we're going to get the true values and know what that means. But then maybe talking about those other methods of testing, right? So like a knee extension machine, using that for hand dynamometry, but then going through, sure, you, you, we understand that and clinicians understand that, but going through the, the process of what does that mean? How do we translate that to the isokinetic test? What, like, if we don't have that, what can we gleam from the suboptimal and then where do we need to focus our mindset around that does that make sense yeah no that definitely makes sense and i think that's that's definitely an important reflective piece on kind of our clinical practice as residents we've had this exposure to kind of the i guess the top of the line equipment so to speak versus Traditionally, and whether it be an outpatient orthopedic, outpatient sports medicine practice, you don't have access to some of those pieces of equipment. Sure. So, so just definitely having that reflective mindset of here's this test that's the best that we can do, understanding what specifically that test tells you. So, for example, that handheld dynamometry, it tells you about the max force that they can produce at a given range of motion. It doesn't tell you how they develop that torque. It doesn't tell you how they maintain that force. Right. Versus like an isokinetic, for example, understanding the limitations with which what you have, but then also being objective. Um, one of the things that I think residency has helped me with is that objectivity with 
making those return to sport decisions, but then also helping the patient to see that they're making change when they might not feel as though they are making change. Right. Because you could probably go from week four to week, let's say nine or 10 and not see a big handheld dynamometry difference. Mm -hmm. You could say maybe like a jump in like five or 10 pounds per square inch or whatever. But I, I think that that is important to outline. And, and with that setting expectations, not only having objective measures in your mind, but then communicating those objective measures and setting that on the patient and saying, Hey, this isn't my fault. If we don't do this, right. It's not your fault. If we don't do this, right. It's your, again, using the ACL example, your knees fault. And that's okay. We can take that information and we will stepwise go where we need to go. And we'll listen to the joint and we'll listen to the muscles and that will guide where we need to go. But if you don't hit X, Y, and Z, we're not going to the next step. Yeah. And I think that that brings up like a, a really new idea and paradigm shift in therapy of we were trending away from those time-based criteria, as you kind of had mentioned and those objective measures, but then it ties into the now reflective piece that I'm getting with the residency of, okay, these objective portions might not fit every specific patient context. For right. example, with, with the ACL, just because that's typically the most researched with limb symmetry index, we're typically wanting within 10%. So greater than 90% limb symmetry with quad and hamstring. But then you look at downhill skiers and they're wanting one to 2%. Right. So, so it's totally context dependent and taking account to what the patient in front of you needs. Are they more of a youth athlete? Are they more of a weekend warrior? And being able to then understand what those objective measures mean, reflect on how you can articulate that and reflect on how you're able to then draw conclusions solely based off of that objective data that's presented to you. You're, you're saying taking the what you have in front of you, whether that is time, whether that is force, whether that is what they look like biomechanically, and combining that with their values to give you that end equation, that end number that, that tells you in your mind, good to go, not good to go. And I, I think that's important. And it's, you're, you're four months into residency and you already have that concept. So that's awesome. Yeah. It, well, the four months have definitely been uh, drinking through a fire hose with, the, uh, with it turned on full blast. Um, but I like to think that I'm learning just a little bit. Uh, I, I think you're going to, you're going to wake up every, uh, every couple months and reflect on your experience and say, whoa, I didn't even know that I knew this and now I yeah. know it. Yeah. But, and uh, I want to, I want to bring one more thing up just mm -hmm. on what we talked about. And that, that was that, uh, topic of maybe you don't have the state of the line or the top of the art, uh, equipment, right? I'm going to, I'm going to push something on you as personally, try to go a week without using any equipment if you can obviously but see what you can do with just your own practice patterns if you don't have any ideas or you're running out of ideas for something ask your mentors get some brainstorming change the the mindset around it and it no honestly it could help your patients like change things up too you know shock the system 
Yeah, no, and I think that's a perfect segue into now gyms are closed in Minnesota, so we don't have access to patient equipment. Um, there you go. So, so it's like a, it's like you uh, read the mind of where I'm trying to get to right now. Of how can I load this particular tissue and desensitize this whatever it might be, right? Without necessarily having an external load all the time. And, and you know what, that's not always the, the case. That's not always where mm-hmm. you need to go with things. It's, it's good to use the tools that you have, but at the same time, having some things in your back pocket that could help with that is highly valuable for not only you, but for your patients and understanding that stuff. But yeah, cool. yeah, I would, I would completely agree with that of, I think you, you know, Mitch, so one of the things yep. that Mitch uh, Salisbury was telling me was giving your patients a way to self-assess themselves. And I think the that point you just brought up of find ways that you can, that you don't necessarily need tools to clinically treat the patient and then instilling on the, instilling on that patient the ability to then self-assess themselves at home, at work, whatever the case might be in whatever context that they feel most limited. So then they're themselves able to say, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling better. I'm getting better. No, I'm, I'm not getting better. What do we kind of need to reorganize and to readjust? And I think the easiest ways that I've started to implement that has been like with bone stress injuries and just having the patient palpate having the patient being more understanding of their pain, of what level am I at, what activity did I just perform at, what volume. And then they can, no, no, there's, and the, the more we kind of get into it, there's so many different variables to juggle with our patient care. It's trying to weed out what do you find are the most important things that they take away because all of the education we can provide, mm-hmm. how much of that is really resonating with the patient is very hard to kind of discern because right. they're only absorbing X amount of knowledge in whether it's a 30-minute session, whether it's a 60-minute session. So trying to find those key takeaway points that you want them to walk out of the clinic with, I think is definitely a growing area for myself to kind of explore and to navigate. We're taking that one step further and saying, yes, I I want them to take away X, Y, and C, but they're not in a place right now that they're going to. So understanding the context and, and reading quote unquote, the room and seeing, are they in a place to even understand that yet? And if they're not, then maybe you need to go back and take a look at the first two levels of the, the dichotomy of change and what they need to do. Maybe you need to prep them first mm-hmm. and like it needs to be a little bit more conversational based and not pepper them the first session with, you need to palpate this. You need to do this. You need to do this. Cause you know, you've probably seen it. People's eyes gloss over sometimes when that happens and just goes way over their head, but other times they, they really love it. So understanding who and when is that, that step as well. And I think you're, you're getting right at that is it's not just as simple of as you have the education knowledge, you give them that education knowledge. It's how you choose to deliver it. When you choose to deliver it, what words you say. Yeah. And 
going through residency, becoming a new clinician, understanding the impact that we have on patients, whether it be they just haven't been moving and they just lack the understanding of, yes, it's safe to move. And just being aware that as much as we try to think that our loading, our strength and conditioning themes are the most important things we do in rehab, which don't get me wrong, they are very highly important with providing optimal loading, progressive overload for tissue, um, tissue function. But Something I would on it. Yeah, maybe, maybe just a couple of bodies of research. <laughs> um, I would honestly say that our words hold the most power. Our, and, and, our, you, and we, sorry, go ahead. I'll let you finish. And I was going to say, I think we just need to make sure we're dosing those appropriately as well. Much to your point of reading the room, we need to make sure we're not overdosing. We need to make sure we're not underdosing our education and our communication to our patients. Have you been a patient yourself? A long time ago. Yeah. Which is what got me into physical therapy. How long ago? I would say the most recent injury was four years ago. Okay. So relatively, relatively fresh recent past. Yeah. Um, I, I have also been a patient myself. I, uh, have been in physical therapy for probably a year total with that. So, I mean, again, that also got me into it. But at the same time, I, I think back sometimes to, to my own experiences and like what was going through my head throughout the process. And I try to compare it to what I think is going through my parent, my patient's head. And it's just totally different. I, like you said, I didn't pick up on the, the importance of the loading patterns and like mm -hmm. when and where and how I picked up on the, the most important things, like the, the things that my physical therapist really harped on that I picked up on like the overall trends, but it took me a long time to do that. And I mean, I was, I was in high school at the time and I would say I was pretty dedicated to physical therapy still. I, it, I wanted to get back to my personal sport, which was baseball, but at the same time, I still didn't have the understanding. So taking it into context, you have to really think about where they're at and even the simplest, <clears throat> excuse me, even the simplest little point or the simplest little exercise that you might think is, oh, it's just no problem or they're getting bored with this. So they do this all the time to warm up. It means something. Have you experienced anything like that? With relationship to kind of like one detail meaning something or how with, do you... with one detail meaning something with your own just physical therapy experiences as a patient versus how you now view it on the other side yeah no i think tying in a patient story of a baseball player who i was working with who every time he got into that layback 90 90 position he had anterior shoulder pain and giving him any sort of basic external rotation strengthening initially because his external rotation internal rotation ratio was like 48%. So far from, far from optimal. Um, and just building in the targeted specific strengthening aspect of it, where he felt it truly isolate this area. And then we put him then in a different position, that 90, 90 position. Did it help to improve? Did it make things better? Did it make things worse? 
he reported that it made it slightly more tolerable or slightly better. And that was a nice talking point of, okay, we just did this strengthening exercise, whether it be more neuromuscular re-education, whether it be a more hypertrophy based, and it made your symptoms feel better. Can you see why targeting this route translates over to your throwing? Because every time you're throwing, you're going at a much higher velocity back into that 90-90 position where the demand on that strength, that endurance aspect of that rotator cuff is going to be vastly more challenged. So what was his response? I think it, there was like this almost a glimmer of hope, so to speak, where he had been dealing with this problem for three or four months at that time where he never really figured out what was specifically going on. Mm -hmm. And just having that belief of, okay, things can get better. I know what I now need to do. I need to actually focus on this specific position, this specific activity pattern so that I can get back to my comfortable playing position. Now, have you seen him since? I've seen him once since that initial session and things, it was kind of a, there's some other psychosocial things going on with him at that time, like kind of since oh. my initial evaluation with him. And that second session was a lot of just reaffirming those, those findings that we had initially. And again, just demonstrating those points of, again, here are why we're doing this. Here's why we're focusing specifically on this. Mm -hmm. I understand that you can military press 95, hundred pounds overhead, but the context of this fine movement was the most relatable to your specific position. And you found that there was some relief. So this is the area that I want to kind of navigate through and see where we go. Now, now to me, you're painting that picture that he didn't get it. Like got it the first session, mm -hmm. right? Came back. You probably like, I don't know if you, you put it this way, but like, what do you need? What do we need to work on? Like, where are we going with this? Do you, do you understand why we're doing this? And he, probably said, oh, no, I don't know. You just, you told me to do it. So I'm doing it. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that I'm trying to get better at too, is the asking a question at the end of any initial evaluation at the end of any treatment session of what are your three big takeaways or like, what are, when you go home, you tell your mom, when you go home, you tell your husband, you tell your wife, three things that we talked about today, what's going on, how we can get better. What are your big three things that you're taking away from today's session? And having them be able to pull back the data and information that you told them in more mm -hmm. of a teach back method and allowing them to struggle. And I feel like I have at times been quick to jump in of, oh, here are the things that I actually want you when they're struggling through doesn't necessarily provide as much of a knowledge recollection because the patient is not having to struggle through it. And there's some decent evidence that supports having to struggle through knowledge um, retrieval actually promotes longer term memory and retention of that information. I mean, we're doing that in residency right now. Ain't <laughs> that the truth? Um, you, you bring up a really good point with that and something that I would like to, to try to, to bring into my practice a little bit more and, and doing something like you said at the end of the session. Do you 
you said you said you need to work on that a little bit more too but what what has your experience been with that are you is that something that you do pretty routinely or is that like a when you feel like the person needs a little bit more understanding then you deploy that how do you do it i think at first it was a it was a depending on the patient context whether it be health literacy or whether it was just this i didn't get the sense that the patient bought in that initial session you didn't have that like quick therapeutic alliance moment that i was using it more but now more i think about it the more routine i'm trying to be with it just because patients are typically coming in to see us with main questions of what's going on what can i do about it will I get better? So those are kind of like these broad things that they want to know and seeing if you, you were able to hit those things mm -hmm. with that teach back, I think is vastly important for not only getting that patient buy-in, but also ensuring that one of the most powerful interventions that we utilize is our education is that it actually was beneficial to them and it didn't provide them with sensory overload or sensory underload. Now, what are what are the physical words that you use? Like, like, how do you go about it? Do you directly say like, what did you learn today? Or what are the three big takeaways? Or do you go about it in another way? It's typically the, so we, after kind of discussing everything that we've touched on today, some of the, some of the exercises that we kind of covered, what are some of your big takeaways from today? And if, and if you don't have as many takeaways, what are some other questions that you have about today? Trying to then tie in, did I truly answer their main question? So it's kind of a conversation based rather than a, I'm quizzing you. And mm -hmm. I think sometimes it can get stuck as a, here's a pop quiz for you at the end of the session. And sometimes I'll even joke around and say like, here's kind of like your, your PT pop quiz. Like, what are your big takeaways from today's session? Like, right. did I meet your expectations from today? I like that and making it a little bit more conversational probably takes the edge off it, mm -hmm. it 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 sees them in their natural environment and they don't put their guard up probably right away and you get to see what they truly think but at the same time you give them an out too i, th I think that is something that that i haven't done in the past is yeah I, I like sometimes to go over like what are the takeaways sure but like if you don't have any i love this part if you don't have any takeaways what questions do you still have because sometimes they don't have takeaways and they feel like they're letting you down or they're like a failure. But at the same time, you're, you're saying, okay, you don't have to have it. You can just have more questions. Then we can get to the final takeaway together. So I appreciate yeah. it. No, I love that. And honestly, I just thought of that when I was talking about it. And now I'm definitely going to re-implement that into my, my, my care experiences, which is perfect. Um, but I think that brings up an awesome point of when patients come in to see us, there's this white coat syndrome. And there was a study, there was a qualitative study that was done where they looked at patients and their experiences with physicians, for example. Mm -hmm. And one of the main reasons that patients didn't ask the questions that they wanted to ask during the session was for fear of embarrassing the provider. So there's this, there's this stigma that there's this stigma that patients don't necessarily ask the questions that they want to because they don't want to feel like they let the provider down with like their education, for example. So I think giving them that out, so to speak, 
is very important to say like, yeah, maybe I didn't do a great job of educating you today. What else can I do to help you? See, I mean, you're, you're taking what you're reading and you're, you're engaging in it live. And that's the reason I would like to do these podcasts mm -hmm. is just for that. It's like that like little light bulb moment. And this is fantastic because then I get to learn from you because now I'm going to implement that. And now I have another thought process that I probably never would have gone down myself. What, what I do personally, and is like tries to get at this too. And this is just me on the spot reflecting is I, I do somewhat do that. I just do it in a different manner. And if you guys are regular listeners, you would, you're going to hear this again. I apologize, but I like to begin all of my sessions now with asking one question. And I do standardize this question across the board for multiple reasons. So this question is, after you get in, get through the like the the niceies, like hey, how's it going? Like how how was your work day or or whatever? And you're like, how do we make today productive? Just phrasing it like that, you get, in my opinion, either two answers. One, you get, oh, I think we need to really work on this, this, and this. I've been feeling like my again bringing it back to the knee. I don't even like the knee. <laughs> But bringing it back to the knee, oh, my, my quad is just like, it doesn't feel like it's, it's working well enough, or I don't feel like I get a burn in my quad. Like, great. Now we know where you're at. Now I know how you've been doing it. Their home exercises, pro, home exercise program. Now I know that you understand where we need to go with things, or at least this is your understanding. And taking that information for what it is and interpreting it in your own decision-making processes. But now you understand a little bit more. So that's that first answer that, I mean, ideal Let's face it, not a lot of patients are going to come back to you with, this is what I need to do today, <laughs> right? The other answer is, well, I don't know. You're, you're the PT. I'm coming to see you. You tell me, right? What, what do you get from that? Tell me. Like, what do you think? Yeah, no, I, I love the standardized question. Um, I think that's, it's vastly important, especially on follow-up sessions of, okay, we tried to instill that we're trying to work on X movement or X loading paradigm or whatever the case might be. How can we be more productive? I love that. And I think standardizing it was a perfect. I try to get at something similar in that mm -hmm. I'll use a kind of like a zero to 100% scale of, okay, you saw me you before, before this injury, you're hundred percent, like you could do whatever you wanted to do. Comparing that to comparing now, what percent of that do you feel like? They might say 50%, 60%, 40%, whatever the case might be. And then I'll ask, okay, what is the remaining 60%? And then it. really, because then I think that puts it more in the, the, the background of the patient context of, they might not directly say like, yeah, my quad is, I'm not feeling the burn, which I think is why that question you have is great. And I'm definitely going to steal that. But then it becomes, okay, my quad isn't great going downstairs stinks. Like I just have no control. Like I have this knee pain going downstairs. Right. Okay. So you told me your quad's not working with that first question. And now the 60% part of that 60% where you feel limited is going downstairs. And so now I have that. this. Yep. Right. And it's probably not going to be the, the first part of that situation. They're not going to tell you my quad stinks. They're going to yeah, tell you, yeah. Hey, I suck at going downstairs. Mm -hmm. Right. And then deducing, like, well, why? 
Like, I don't know. My knee hurts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you tell me, right? Right. You tell me. But when you get the you tell me question, mm-hmm. what goes through your mind? That's what I was trying to get at in the first part. Yeah, I think the you tell me part tells me that there might be some locus of control that's external. And with all of what we try to do as providers, I think we want to instill this self-efficacy. We want to instill that the patient is in control of their destiny, so to speak. It's their choose their own adventure. I can provide you with all these tools, but I'm not necessarily going to be able to do these things for you. It's a cool way to look at it. So I think that when someone says like, you tell me, that raises my flags of, okay, do they have a good understanding of what's specifically going on? Did I give them enough education to see, to tell them that here are the steps that we're going to be trying to make? Or does that prompt a reevaluation at that time where, okay, maybe we just need to reeval, let's put them on the dynamometer again, let's see where their quads at, and then show them more of that objective numbers if I'm thinking it's more quad strength related, for example. Show them those signs of, okay, we this is kind of that avenue where we need to work and almost throw them a softball, allow them to hit it where they're recognizing, oh, like, yeah, I can see this difference. Like, I can see how that might be kind of like a problem area for me. Exactly. I I totally can relate to that. And the, the way that you interpreted the, I don't know, you tell me is some of the similar ways that I do is not just saying, oh, like, oh, that's crappy. Like, I'll just tell you what's going on, but it gives you an understanding into their mind, like you said. And it says, hey, maybe I don't understand my plan of care or what I need to do to get better. And then you can use that as a great jumping off point to say, hey, we, we, this is what we need to do. Or like you said, show them and have them come back to you with, well, this is actually what I need to do today. That makes sense. I like that. I usually, I usually personally do it in, in a more simplistic manner, but I think I'm going to try your way a little bit too. So I usually, if they don't, if they come back to me and they say, I don't know, you tell me like, great, I'm going to get, I'm going to give you some education. Like again, this is what's going on. And I want you to, to remember that and to understand it and to, to sink that in. And I do that because it's a recurring question. We go through it multiple times. So every session, how do we make today productive? I don't know. Well, we just asked that last time and you didn't know, right? Like, yeah, okay. So it didn't sink in. What part of that wasn't easy to understand or what part of that was confusing? And they're going to say, well, I probably didn't even listen to you when you were saying that. Like, okay, fair enough. And like taking that to the next step. And then you're going to see one of these days they come back to you like, oh, I need to work on my, uh, my balance and my uh, glute med control. Like, whoa, you even know the name of the muscle? <laughs> right? So it just gives you an understanding and helps you, like you said, objectify that education. I think, I think you, you made a really powerful statement in, in recognizing how important and valuable our education is to our patients. No, no. I love it. I think the soft skills of PT isn't necessarily something we spend a whole lot of time with in our formal schooling. And in my opinion, it's one of the most potent, most important things that we do on a daily basis. Yeah. 
unfortunately i get too drawn into it and then just like i salivate whenever somebody starts to talk about soft skills i'm like yes i love talking about this and probably the last 15 episodes have been about soft skills in some manner way but if if we if we shift gears a little bit i want to get back to a little bit more of your experience Mm-hmm. And and with that, a lot of people ask, and I've had this own question. I'm sure you've had this question come up in your personal life, but why sports versus ortho? Yeah, the the so quote unquote age old de- debate, right? The age um, old debate. Let it begin. Yes. No. I think one of the big reasons I chose sports over orthopedics was the acute management and having that exposure to be on the field with the athletes and provide that acute management of emergency care. I think this was important to myself because then it allows me to more easily empathize with the patients that I'm seeing in the sports medicine field. I can understand the emotions that are going on on the field when they sustain an injury and then they present three weeks later into your practice. And then I also think it provides this rapid it promotes a more rapid thinking or more thought process where you're trying to quickly deduce information that they're telling you your objective examination and you have to make an instantaneous decision of can this patient or can this athlete walk off do i need to call for the ambulance to come on the field like whatever the case might be it promotes this more rapid thought process Mm -hmm. versus in the traditional pt practice at least where we are we have 60 minute evaluation so 15, 10, 15 minutes subjective, 15, 20 minutes objective, whatever the case might be, you have a lot of time to integrate the data that's coming in, formulate your prognosis, your diagnosis, your plan of care versus the acute management side. It's, it's all happening at once. And you feel like that makes you better at your regular PT evaluations or does that change anything that goes to your mind? I think it makes me more direct with my questioning not so much beating around the bush with my subjective questioning. If there's something that the patient's telling me that I think, okay, this is standing out as potentially the inciting incident or their big problem. I can then dovetail deeper into that specific point in a more efficient manner than asking some other questions to clarify. Because like you said, on the field, you have to make split de- second decisions. So you can't be like, oh, how, how was your morning? Did you eat breakfast this morning or anything? What would mm-hmm. you have? You have to be like, what, what can you do? What can't you do? Where is it? What is it? How does it feel? Being really direct and simplistic. And I, I, think, I think that is very valuable. And I wish I would have more of that side personally from, from orthopedics not having that directness in questioning and interviewing, I see how that could really help the efficiency of evaluations and also just get right, getting right to the point and with diagnosis. So interesting thought. Yeah. And I think too, then with a little bit differently too, another reason why I chose sports over orthopedics was I needed a little bit more opportunity to grow with a little bit more extremity rehab and sports medicine is typically a little bit more extremity rehab versus orthopedics. It's going to be a little bit more spine. You're still, you're still getting a combination of everything in sports and orthopedics, but where I needed to grow a little bit more was the management of extremity injuries, at least from what I identified and it fit kind of my own personal beliefs of, 
getting having more enjoyment i would say of helping an athlete return back to a sport not that i don't have enjoyment with returning a a individual back to work or to their function playing with their kids for whatever or whatever dude martha's got to play pickleball too you know <laughs> yeah i know i know um i think it just fits better with my mind of I like to make the the things as creative as I can to put them in their sporting context. That's just how my mind thinks a little bit better. I I've heard from from other sports residents something similar, and especially from the acute care side of things, you're wanting that that on field coverage and you're you're wanting some of that experience. And I think you just articulated it for me. It's more than just I want to work on field and to work on field, I need that on field experience, but it, it's going to help you within your, your physical therapy career outside of the, the athletic realm or the arena per se. But what somebody, somebody brought this to my attention and it might be along the lines of you, you like liking to work with a little bit more of athletes, but he, he said that he likes the, the sports field a little bit more, or he chose the sports field because he, didn't feel like he had a great grasp and understanding of return to sport. So like the final, let's say 20% of rehab. And he felt like his uh, residency experience in the sports side really helped prepare him for that last little bit, the, the part that we don't, honestly, we don't get that in school. Um, I haven't personally gotten a whole heck of a lot of that, even in my orthopedic residency, unfortunately, but at the same time, it's, that could be one of, I could see that as a really big uh, value for the sports residency. Yeah, I would agree. I think there's going to be more sports specific didactics with related to sports injuries, as well as those return to sport testing batteries, as well as decision making for return to sport. And exactly to your point, we don't get that in PT school. And during our clinical rotations, we're typically not seeing patients long enough or over the timeline to develop your plan of care to incorporate initial midterm terminal and then return to sport phases and having that mentoring with other sports physical therapists who have returned countless numbers of athletes back and their decision making and how they reflect and how they clinically rationalize the decisions that they're making I think is vastly important and definitely in big component to the sports versus ortho debate as well yeah i i can see how that would be very valuable and, and something that i'm missing and i hope to to get a little bit more from uh gleaming from my sports friends so <laughs> i like that um do you where do you ultimately want to go in your career like where do you see yourself in 10 15 years are you, do you want to be on the sidelines you want to like have you thought that part ahead even yeah, it's like I barely know what I'm doing tomorrow with the residency. Um, no, I think 10 to 15 years, I I enjoy working in a dynamic, like hospital-based setting. And within that, I would love to be able to work on the sideline with other athletic trainers providing care for specifically football. Um, I, I found a great enjoyment of helping out and working on the sideline with football athletes and that's definitely something that I would want to continue with, as well as then working alongside like other marathons, things like that, where just kind of adding some volunteer hours.
but more so what I want to get into is the teaching and the education aspect of post-residency life, whether that's becoming a CI and then getting more involved into PT schools of whether that's lab adjunct or providing a lecture on a semi-regular basis, that's kind of where I want to give back to the profession. Awesome. I, I think you're, you're in the right situation then for that. You, your stars aligned with what type of institution that you're at mm-hmm. and the opportunities that they afford you along with it aligns with your sports background too. So that's awesome. I think that's important for people to understand is not all residencies are going to give you this specific knowledge base on teaching or the specific knowledge base in the the sport that you want, right? All sports residencies aren't even the same from this fact that you you might work with and and like for example, our sports residents work strictly with the rugby team. Right? So I they get some exposure from what I understand to other sports, but at the same time that's their main focus. So, I mean, if that's not your main focus or that's something that's like not interesting to you, maybe our sports residency isn't it for you. Maybe you need to find a place that works more with baseball or more with like whatever tickles your fancy. Yeah, no, I a hundred percent agree. And my advice to anyone considering or pursuing residency is as much as they're interviewing you to be a resident, you should be likewise interviewing them as a residency institution. They're trying to best fit their needs. You need to spend the time and the education and the research to say definitively that this program is going to best suit my needs. And then hopefully the stars align and you're able to get the best of both worlds with that. Right, unfortunately that doesn't happen all the time, but at the same time, if you show that you're trying to interview them, mm-hmm. that shows the the institution or that shows the director, that shows the people that you're around interviewing with that you care and you're going to be a self-starter and you're somebody that is going to get the most out of the given situation. So as much as it like seems selfish and you, like I'm just going to conform to whatever you want, no. Show that initiative, show that, a little bit of a, a background and quote unquote, a backbone to take charge of your own. And that will get you places, at least in my personal experience. Now I've been asking a lot of the questions. Do you have anything that you particularly want to talk about? Yeah, I think one of the other questions that's kind of hotly debated is, should I pursue residency directly after graduation or do I wait, gain some clinical experience and then go back to fine tune through a residency? And I would love to kind of hear your opinions on that. Right. So I think we're both biased on yeah, this a account, little bit, right? Yeah. yeah. Both new grads going in, into residency. Um, I think it's a great question and it's something that I personally struggled with when thinking about, do I want to do a residency? Do I wait a little bit? Um, from from standpoint of talking with other people, because I've talked with probably around 10 to 15 other residents, um, most of those people are along the lines of if it fits with where your lifestyle is. And it's more it's more towards like your personal decision making and just 
can you afford to do this right now? Is this something that that fits in with your schedule? Because understanding it is a little bit of time commitment, right? It's it's not a short stint for any stretch of the imagination. And you do have to take a little bit of a pay cut from from that side of things. But and you also might just be in school mode. So that's another thing to consider is are you a, one of those self-starter peoples or you just need to be pushed and with that? So with everything going on, I would say personally, I think it's yes, if it fits into your schedule at the time, it, like that's probably going to be the biggest determinant. But I, I, I want to push, and this is kind of why I'm doing the podcast, is I think residencies are immensely important. And I think we should be doing more so advocating for it and pushing towards the residency route and making people make those big boy or big girl decisions and saying, I want to commit to this part. I don't want to just be a generalist. So getting, getting more along, along those lines and specializing a little bit earlier, I think is important. And yes, it's a sacrifice, but play the long game. Just because you're taking a little bit of a hit, $10,000, $15,000 hit, sure, it's significant. And you know what? If you can't deal with it, I totally understand. But what's the thing that's going to make you the most money potentially in the future is investing in yourself and making yourself the most valuable you can to not only yourself, to your family, but to your patients and to your employer. And I would challenge that residency is that manner what do you think yeah i think definitely a little bit biased like yourself um as much as love as i have for our profession i want to see it propel as much as we possibly can in the most efficient way possible and i think residency is a great way to further develop excellent clinicians with the disclaimer that excellent clinicians can develop without residency, you just need residency. Um, but I think residency can add another piece to the puzzle of getting you to where you want to be as quickly as you possibly can. So that investment in yourself. I think residency is really built for those who know what they want to do and do it as quickly as possible. So That's really easy, right? Yeah. It's not like not it's not everybody's blessed in that that situation to know exactly what they want to do. And if you don't know, don't force it. No, I, I completely agree. And I think that there can be more education in PT schools about what residency specifically are, but then also understanding that you might want to do a sports versus a neuro residency. That was one, those were the two options I was weighing throughout. PT school was sports or neuro, which took a little bit different. Yeah. Um, but, but, but then it was the exposures that I had with my clinical rotations that really set the, okay, yeah, sports. Um, I, I'd rather, I'd rather pursue sports. Um, so I think with that in mind, if you don't have the experiences that you want to definitively make the decision between sports or neuro or cardiovascular, acute, whatever the case might be, then maybe you do take a year off and you say, okay, I want to explore my opportunities in acute care. Do I really enjoy this? Okay. Yeah. I want to pursue this. 
or yeah, no, I really didn't like that. And I really liked the outpatient world a lot better Then you pursue that. So much to your talking points, I don't think there's a negative to waiting a year, waiting a couple of years or doing right. it right away as a new grad. There's no right answer. No. Unfortunately, you know what they always say. It depends. <laughs> well, our favorite PT school saying, right? I, I do want to do want to leave the conversation. And at the, at the same point, I, I, I do think it depends, right? And, and I do, like you said, agree with the sentiment that you don't need residency education to be a fantastic clinician. But I'm going to stir the pot just because, you know, that's what we need to do. We need to not just stay the status quo. And I think residency needs to be mandatory. I'm going to just come out and say that. I know I'm a little bit biased and my opinion might change a little bit. And, but that was my opinion when I started. That's my opinion now. Um, so we need to, I think we need to think on that a little bit more. We don't have to discuss it too much, but I think putting our foot in the ground and standing on one side versus another is important too. So... Yeah, I think that's a that's definitely some something to chew on. Um, I think there's some interesting things that can be done with residency where maybe we say at the last year of PT school, you do a residency instead of a clinical rotation, you get paid for it, student loan debt decreases, but then you also need an ex a vast expansion in residencies. Right, we don't have the capabilities right now to take on mm -hmm all of that, right? So we need, we need to number one, grow the profession. We need to grow our understanding of residencies. We need to grow the number of residencies. We need to do something about that debt to income ratio. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just not where it needs to be for our profession in general, but you know what? We can change those things. And I feel like we're going to have to, the, the people in our generation, the, the people listening to this podcast, you're going to have to make the change. Because we can't rely on those people fighting on Twitter right now. Because in 10, 15 years, where are they going to be? They're probably going to be retired. And who's it going to be up to? Right? So take ownership. Take, think about the future a little bit. So I think that's a good place to end. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. And uh, again, I want to uh, thank you so much for having me on and being able to speak to your followers. I had a great experience with this. And Hopefully the listeners and yourself are able to take away some points. I know I certainly have taken a lot away, a lot of points for reflection and some things I can add to my clinical care, which I think is the ultimate goal of, of these podcasts. I, I started this with the objective of personally learning, of personally expanding my own net. And you know what, if people want to come along and follow along with that, great. If they don't, Oh, well, I'll still continue to learn. And you know what? You provided me with that learning experience today. And like you said, I have so many things to think about versus our conversation. And I absolutely loved it. I mean, it's hard to think like what we've been talking for uh, well over an hour now. And it feels like it's just been like that. So I really appreciate the conversation. I really appreciate the insight. And I'm looking forward to see where you're going with your career because I, I can see it right now. You're, you're going to do some big things. Fingers crossed and you as well too. Thanks, man. I, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to come on and talk with me. Yeah, we'll have definitely. to do it again soon. Yeah, for sure. We, for sure we can. Okay. 
Thank you, AJ. Thank you, everybody listening. Much love to all you guys out there. Thank you for keeping the support up. Thank you for everything that you do. If you want to be on the podcast, send us a message. Our email is in the link. I would love to hear your opinions. It's something that I said. If something that AJ said really made you think inside and you want to expand on it or you just it really pissed you off and you're like, hey, I want to rock the boat too in the other way. Let's do it. That's what we need to do. We need to have conversations about these things. We can't just hold our opinions inside or just stay on one side of the fence versus the other. Let's learn from each other and together we can push forward for the future. So with that, signing out, this is the postdoc PT experience. Much love, everybody.